Well, you know, one of, one of the things you know is one of my gripes with, with uh, managers for baseball is a side of thinking that they're not that integral in day-to-day operations. You, uh, you definitely undersell the manager. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think they're not making their pay grade at this point. Right, right. Um, but I don't know why, I don't know why that they need to wear that outfit. <laughs> why can't they behave like every other manager in sports, put on a damn suit, put on a pair of pants, khakis, shirt, jacket, whatever. Any of those will do. But... I don't know why those guys suit up like they're going to be running the bases. Why do we need to see? Why does Dusty Baker? Why does Dusty Baker have to wear that ridiculous outfit? Why does he got wristbands on? Why is it? Why does, why does he have a, a toothpick in his mouth at all times? What is going he's, on? He's always just eaten. He's always oh. got food in his mouth. But it's like Brad Pitt from Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> but, but he's poor. I feel so, part of it is just the empathy I feel. I feel so bad that Don Zimmer, at seventy-two years old, is just rolling rolling out his socks, <laughs> putting on a pair of cleats. He's got to show up two hours before game time to put on his uni. <laughs> And it's also like a, it's also like a painful reminder the fact that they they don't play anymore and can't run the bases. It's like here's this uniform you used to wear when you were a player and you were seventy five pounds lighter, and I can't. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of According to Alan. Uh, we are live in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm joined by Radiant Pig owner, beer connoisseur, uh, music aficionado, <laughs> sports fan, <laughs> Rob Peel. Uh, Rob, how are you doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having me on the show. I, I like that um, you dropped each level down <laughs> with beer, beer up top. You're like, ah, sports fan. Uh, each yeah. each level of uh, got a little bit lower. So if you kept going, I could only imagine what. Well, that only tells you uh, what I think of you. Okay. Right. Good. So it's start, like start I started high. off with the praise, and then after we would have kept going about five more, it'd have gotten real nasty. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just kind of give you before we jump in here, I just want to give you kind of a heads up. Uh, usually I talk about some local two and nine stuff, and uh, this is not going to be any exception. Um, just want to kind of go over a little bit of a recap of the week. Josh Metz, uh, it's really awesome meeting you. That's going to be pretty cool. I'm excited about that. So uh, to fill you in as an audience, uh, we're going to be bringing animation to Local 219 soon. Um, he's a cartoon illustrator, and he's got all the software for it. We've been talking some really cool stuff. Uh, you can check him out on, uh, I think, the, the, the his flagship is Hungus Among Us on YouTube. Uh, so check that out. Another guy I wanted to kind of give a shout-out to is Joey Laxalinas. He's a professional photographer in the area. And uh, we talked for about five and a half hours on Thursday. I see some real positive things coming that way. Um, so really excited about that. And uh, he's, if you uh, are familiar with any of his work, he does a lot of landscapes. He tries to collect a ton of pictures of each town from northwest Indiana. And uh, he does a killer job of it. I met him through Jerry Davich. And as like we talked earlier, um, thank you so much. Uh, this week we uh, debuted our first video on Facebook 
and that was with my uh, interview with Peter Kiefer of Absolute Memorabilia. Uh, for the first one, we got about 500 views organically, so that was awesome. So thank you for the support on that. Um, this next week coming up, I probably shouldn't tell you what we're looking at, but um, I think I'm going to have Dave Pishker, the head baseball coach at Andrean, uh, on the Talk Local podcast on Wednesday. So uh, look out for that. So um, without further ado, uh, we've been uh, we've had a, a pretty busy week. Uh, weekend in New York. I got in here on Friday and uh, today uh, we're drinking on an empty stomach. I would say that this is probably uh, sponsored by Radiant Pig unofficially, this this podcast in particular. And that's that's Rob's uh, brewery that he started. So I guess we'll just kick it off. Um, Rob, should we talk about what's been going on this weekend, what we did? Yeah, yeah. I think I think let's um, let's let's bring people in and um, let them know what we've been up to up here. It's been a been a lot in a, in a 48 hours, I'd say. Or yeah, most of it a blur, Yeah. right? <clears throat> so Friday, I got in around 10, and then uh, you worked, Yeah. right? Because yeah. on top of being a brewer, you also do some side work, right? I do. Um, which we haven't talked know. about this weekend. You haven't really said that, which you're, no, which you're well, up you to. No, you know, this is, this, is, this is my passion. This is, the beer is, the beer is what I'm about. And, um, and also, you know, that, that we, got, we got a lot of ground to cover this weekend. So, um, you know, we'll... I think um, I think the beer is is definitely the the consistent theme of the weekend as well. We we had some aside of <laughs> what we're doing now. Um, we had some nice highlights on on yesterday and on Friday yeah. um, as well. So so, so Friday we've been Friday. Ma- we've been mainly hooking up in the Brooklyn area for at least for Friday, right? And and uh, yesterday we did as well. Today we we kind of ventured off into Manhattan for. Uh, a little bit of the Met. We got we got cultured. Yep, a little reprieve um, there. That's that was awesome. pretty cool. Great art, right? The Michelangelo exhibit was awesome. The um, what's the other one? Uh, I don't want to. Bru- I'm, I'm going to mess up his name. <laughs> what's the other one? What uh, Van Van Gogh or no, no, specific the, exhibit? Rodin. Rodin. Yes. Yeah. R O D I N. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. So that was really cool. So Friday we got in. Um, we hit the town pretty hard. We went to a brewery. Which brewery was that? Uh, we went to KCBC, which is. Uh, uh, short for Kings County Brewers Collective. That was uh, yesterday, right? Oh, that was yeah. yeah. Well, Friday we didn't go. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. I totally we, forgot. The first one, that. yeah. Well, we we uh, we pounded a few pops before we got there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, Friday night it was a uh, it was a nice Brooklyn crawl. We started at um, this place called Strong Rope Brewery, which is over in um, different neighborhood than we're at now, um, but in Gowanus uh, Gowanus area, I believe, Carroll Gardens. So we started off there. Um, that was really good. That was my first time there. Obviously, your first time as well. But pretty good beer. Um, yeah, I good enjoyed stuff. it. I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, nice spot. Um, um, good area, and just was kind of a fun overall vibe. And they they were really they had, they were slinging some good stuff that night. And then we ended up at the going away party for your friend. Yeah, we met up with a couple of your friends at the brewery, uh, Tiss and who was the other uh, gentleman's name? Mike. Mike. Yeah. So we met up with those guys. They were really awesome. Hung out with them the rest of the night. Um, the going away party was at a bar, uh, with like an Asian theme kind of when it comes to the, uh, light fixtures. Uh, what was that one? Um, it's called zombie hot. It's a bit of a tiki theme. So I think the, the, um, thematic play there was that, um, (laughs) friend Alex is moving to, uh, warmer pastures and, and that was kind of the, um, kickoff for them into, um, the land of uh, sunshine and mixed drinks. Mm. So, um, then from there, we uh, we continued the journey. We had a fun night, fun time there. We delved into some drinks that were maybe bluer 
than we're used to drinking. <laughs> I believe I believe they were called the Blue Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? Kind of. <laughs> I don't remember actually having one, so that tells you where that night was. <laughs> I barely remember the pizza that night. And then we, which one? <laughs> <laughs> and then we went uh, after that. We went to a uh, a really cool bar that had like an upstairs that was kind of built like an office. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a really nice office, leather couches. Uh, and then downstairs, there was a karaoke going on, which is always entertaining. Um, no idea who was putting that on at that point. Uh, best song at that point. I don't know which song was probably the best. Hmm. I feel like that's maybe what was lacking a bit is that typical karaoke moments. You've, you've got those bring down the house songs, those homers that that everybody just knows and belts out. This, yeah. this seemed a bit more like... Um, a bit of an inside joke, you know. Everyone got up and did their own little thing that their friends enjoyed, but didn't really play to the crowd. I felt like, I felt like there was a lot of um, um, songs that I didn't know or that didn't couldn't at least belt along and uh, and be part of the chorus. The the one that I remember the most is Piano Man. I think that one was that like the most. I uh, I'm gonna... <laughs> man. That's just <laughs> so. I don't know if that happened. <laughs> that happened. <I> That's <laughs> real. That's real. <laughs> and then uh, after that, uh, I think we both passed out in the Uber. <laughs> we did. And then uh, yeah. we ended up at this uh, pizza place around the corner from your your apartment. Uh, and there was probably the best entertainment we've had on all weekend, right? Yeah. I mean, the, there was this guy there who uh, kind of looks like Danny Glover. Not Danny Glover. What's his son's name? Donald Glover. No. Yeah. It's his son? Yeah, he's the guy with Atlanta. Remember yeah, we were talking that's his about this. Yeah, oh, yeah, Childish Gambino. That. Oh, I didn't know that. So uh, yeah, we so he looked like him. Was knocking down freestyle left and right. Um, we barely, we like barely finished. I mean, we were just pounding food. I would love to have video on that one. I would not. Animals. Yeah, yeah. Was, <laughs> I was wearing half that pizza by the end of that. <laughs> it was not pretty. Yeah. Um, and so when we got in around four a.m. on Friday night, uh, to our, our <laughs> to our excitement. Uh, we had a beer event in Long Island on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. So uh, I, uh, I I had to grab a couple of bags just in case of uh, some some a delay in sickness on the ride there. Uh, I'm, for you guys listening, uh, I made it. I, there was no there was no throwing up. Uh, and then we had to pass out beer for about six hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, really cool. I wanted to kind of give a shout out to those guys who we uh, we hung out with. That was a lot of fun. Um, the Barrage Brewing, uh, the, I believe his name was Steve. He was super cool. Uh, we were right next to Flying Belgium, and his name was Kevin, and he was great. And then uh, Barrier Brewing, Bobby Carlo, who is uh, represented for them. We had a great time with those dudes. And literally an overall great time. Yeah, right? I mean, I, th- I, think, I think that's part of what's really great, and, and, and we'll... Um as we get into what's after, I think it'll we'll kind of emphasize that point. But that's what's really great about the New York City brewing scene is that everybody's so um, everyone's so communal, um, everyone's so welcoming and and um, supportive of one another's. And you do those events, and that's exactly how that plays out. You know, uh, on the back end, you have all these other people from different breweries, different places, just sharing beers, talking about it, talking about their passion for it. Um, with others, with yourselves, very engaging, like just um, great group. Um, that's one of the things that, you know, as I got into that world that I had never considered, it was just, a you know, my own homebrew um, sort of dreams and ambitions that really made it um, just great and, and really 
made it even better than something you could have anticipated out of the gate. That's a great group. That's a great group, and and that's consistent with almost every brewing festival I've ever done. Um, just I always you always make friends at these things. Oh yeah. You always have a couple lingerers on the other end, but um, you always make friends at these things. And um, yesterday was no different. It was it was a good day out there. Um, fun fun place, fun venue. Everyone was really good. The beer was really re- well received. Um, and um, you know, tough getting back, but uh, yeah, man. tough getting up. Caught a little traffic. Tough getting tra- up. Tough, tough getting, getting back. back. <laughs> um, uh, but I, we powered I mean, through. That was one of my first beer events I've ever worked. Now I've been to plenty. Right, and uh, usually that's uh, as a consumer, uh, it's a different kind of animal. So uh, as a as a person who's actually handing out and representing a brewery, it was pretty interesting. I thought the uh, cool thing was is that how how uh, conversational it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people are just interested in uh, are just fascinated by the process. They're fascinated by the story behind the brewing. Um, at least from I, I feel like you told your story from the name to. Uh, to the style of beers and why those are created constantly um, throughout the day. So it's really informational. It's pretty cool to be hands-on, I would say, when it comes to a social component to it. And like I said, I think for me, like the really cool part was uh, just being able to kind of be, kind of share that communal space with the other breweries because they were really cool. And by the end of it, you know, you're six hours in with someone. It's like you work with them. Yeah. You know, so that was really cool. Uh, loved that. Met a lot of great people. Uh, interesting area. And to kind of bring it full circle, so we got back, um, and then we kind of uh, we, we rallied, mm-hmm. right? And then we uh, hit up a couple spots. We went for food at uh, what's the name of that place? It was all it was all like Cajun. Yeah, Heavy Woods. Heavy, Heavy Woods, Woods is, uh, really is a nice cool. Local, yep, um, great great spot local to here in Bushwick. Um, I, they they kind of do what what I really like about that place is that they're 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 hitting on both levels. They've got. The bar thing going that's really great. They've got the food going, which is really great. You can go there either time. You can go there for breakfast. They're just sun up to sundown or whatever their hours are. They're they're a spot that you can always hop into. They're just doing everything well. They they're doing the coffee thing good. They're doing the food thing good. They're doing the bar thing good. All good. All good. And they uh, I've noticed a trend in this area particularly. So graffiti is everywhere, and then I've also noticed that a lot of the food come in baskets. The basket's a big deal around here. I had basket. no idea. I didn't either. Now that you say it, but the the chicken, the burrito we had earlier today, that was in a basket, mm. and then the sandwich I had yesterday was in a basket as well. When we were at that Half Woods place, are you anti basket? Eh, are you embracing the trend? I'm impartial to the basket. Yeah, you know, well, I'd, I'd say if I were to guess, most are impartial to the basket. Yeah, I guess it's kind of limiting, right? Because it's like it's a it's a cylinder that's rounded as mm-hmm. opposed to a flat surface. So. But not to get too far into that. So I will go back into like the local uh, aspect of it. Um, a lot of people, surprising to me, so they love Three Floyds. I heard a lot of love for them because when I was in conversation, they were just big into them. Sounds like uh, Dark Lord, of course, Zombie Dust, uh, Gumball Head were the top three. I heard a couple people go deep in like Space Station Middle Finger. Um, and uh, like, uh, what's the other one? Um, oh my God, what's the other? Oh, it doesn't, well, I'm trying to think what that one is. Um, but yeah, no, I, so I didn't, and the other one I heard, which is kind of surprising was Pipeworks. I was really surprised at how many people knew that beer. Cause that's a kind of an undercover one. Even, even in Chicago, people don't really talk about it too much. Um, so that was, that was interesting to hear. So like there was a lot of local love there. Um, so we knocked that whole out, that whole thing out. And then we just kind of bar hopped last night. Right. 
Yeah, we, we, you know, tonight, well, last night was, was kind of a nice, uh, so the first night we were in Brooklyn, but it's a big borough, and we were kind of jumping out to different neighborhoods and different areas to see, you know, what that was about. And then last night was really focused on Bushwick. So um, after hitting up Heavy Woods, we went to Kings County Brewers Collective. That was cool. Yeah. Met some really um, cool people there. Yeah. Also known as KCBC here. Um, great spot. Um, we had some really nice beers from them. Um, definitely was digging their their sours and their IPAs were were really sweet and um, you know they, that that spot's every time we go there that spot and the beer just seems to get better and better every time we go there um, it's it's good conversation and and good folks seem to be there so um, yes the the beer continued and like I said kind of teeing off on before just with this whole weekend with the whether it was at uh, the first place we went to Strong Rope or whether it was at the festival yesterday there's just a great um, kind of communal vibe here, whether you, whether you're just helping out at an event or whether you're a patron or whether you're a brewer, um, there's just a really great um, kind of communal welcoming vibe going on in New York City with with in the brewing circles right now. So it's a it's a kind of a great thing to be a part, great time to be here. And, and you know, when you first time you came out to New York, um, pretty limited in terms of where we could go with breweries and, and tours like that. Yeah, it's amazing even seeing the growth from it in from a from this perspective and then back home. Back home's been the same. I mean, it was like one brewery, it was three Floyds and now it's a million. Yeah. You know, and uh there's been some really good ones that come out of it. It's great. Uh, Give me a million and one. Oh I'm yeah. All for yeah. It. And everyone, I mean like, it's a it's amazing community because like I said, it, I mean when experiencing it, it never fails. It's always so communal. And uh it's really cool. And then so you, on the other hand, uh, you've got, uh, so you've been doing Radiant Pig for how long now? How long have you started that company? Um, it's about four and a half years since we did our first commercial batch. So that was the Junior? Yep. Right? Yep. Junior was the flagship. Okay. Yep. And then uh, you made that in kind of like, well, it's going to, unfortunately for you Northwest Indiana people, this is not going to be something you can try. Uh, but uh, hopefully, eventually, if I guess when all if, if everything works <laughs> out great. Uh, if you if we're trying it in Northwest Indiana, great things are happening, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> we're doing well at that point. Yeah, so like, uh, so just to give you a background. So we've got four beers that are being distributed consistently, and we've got Junior, we've got Save the Robots, we've got Gangster Duck, and we've got uh, Eight No Half Stepping, which is your like or No Half Stepping. I I got the Big Daddy Kane song in my head, um, but all four of those are hitting. They're on the streets, so people can check those out. Um, great. So if you get, if you get a chance to check it out, uh, Rob is in, uh, he used to, so he went to college for art, right? So what, which college did you go to? Let's give a shout out to them. Yep. School of Visual Arts. School of Visual Arts um, in Manhattan. Oh yeah. Okay. Big time. And you're a Boston guy. Street. Yep. Originally. So he does a lot of, um, what's the style of art that you were talking mm -hmm. about here in particular? It's like a, um, well, I, I think a lot of it's just kind of a homage to, to street art. And, and, you know, as we've been walking around this area in Bush Bush, you know, as Alan kind of mentioned, is is famous for um, there's so much great street art. You walk around here, you don't even have to go three blocks to see some amazing, amazing artwork just thrown up there. And so, like, for anyone who visits New York City or visits Brooklyn, it and if that's your thing, it's well worth stopping by this area to check it out because there's some pretty amazing uh, work going around there. So, just in that vein, um, as an art school kid. I always looked up to those street artists because, um, you know, as, as you're here and as you're studying those things, you, you think about those people that kind of walked in, in those shoes and, and were out there creating this stuff. And so it was everywhere and, and has been since I've been here. And that's something you don't, you have access to no matter what. You don't have to, 
you know, have money to go to a museum or do anything. It's all around you and it's, and it's, and it's everywhere and anyone can appreciate it. And so with, with every piece of, uh, you know, design or artwork, things we create for the, for Radiant Pig, always want to reflect that, that kind of creative inspiration, just of, of the bright colors, um, the hand-drawn kind of nature of it, the, um, just kind of the, overall sentiment of just this do-it-yourself nature. I mean, that's how, how we sort of started, and that's how all these guys started. They, they weren't commissioned. They they weren't invited to be in a museum. It wasn't some big show by some big backers. These people literally just used what they had, which is spray paint, and in the street as their canvas, as their platform. So um, that's something that inspired me, and still does to this day, even as things have changed. Um, and just something I wanted to have and carry throughout the um, anything with the brand, just as you know, I think beer is is one part, one huge, obviously inspiration behind it, and then just kind of the sort of creative inspiration also of of um, that art world that's specific to New York City as well. Yeah, well, it's it's you can't miss it. I mean, when you come into this area, like I, I visited you in the day, but you know, like at uh, when you lived in Manhattan, and it was just not even the same kind of aspect at all. Uh, this area just embraces graffiti art, um, murals, and you can walk, like literally every step is covered in just art, you know? And it really does a good job of like kind of bringing up the value. We're doing a lot of that stuff in Gary in particular. Um, there's been a lot of grant money kind of being coming through where, um, so uh, you'll probably be able to check it out if you Google it. There's this guy Flex, who's like a graffiti artist and from East Chicago, Indiana. And uh, he does a lot of like Jackson Five murals and uh, oh, the Jacksons. It's awesome, really like cool. full buildings, you know. So we've got that kind of aspect of it. And it's kind of like a beautification of like that downridden area, you know. Yeah, and I love I love that it's a nod to the past and and what it is and you know potentially what it stands for. I mean, that that's great. I mean, that's you know I was telling you about you hadn't seen it yet, but they they have that. Biggie mural down the block, and oh, I can't wait to those, see that. Those kind of I love when they sort of do those nods to the past of the area, uh, you know, building off the history that's there or whatever um, is there in addition to their own vision and vibe that they they want to add to that story. So but, enough uh, enough beer. You're a Boston guy. <laughs> oh boy, right. Yeah. So uh, musically, what's the, what's my accent? What's the number one? What's the what's the biggest Boston band of all time? Ooh boy. Um, that's a good, that's a good question. Is it the mighty, mighty boss tones? You know what? Here's the thing is, is it, the question is, is who's the most fame, who's the most beloved Boston centric band or who's the most, who's the biggest band to come out of Boston, right? So, so Aerosmith, right. So that's a great, those two, those two examples are the kind of the epitome in that mighty, mighty boss tones kind of encapsulate in my opinion, um, that area, those people, what kind of the overall vibe the um, of, um, you know, Bostonians. Uh, Aerosmith is by far obviously the bigger global brand, but I don't, you, you won't go to Boston and hear any sort of extra love or extra, you know, resonance for Aerosmith. You don't go there and people just gush and go, oh, those are my guys. They're so Boston. We love them in the city. We embrace them. And when they're here... Um, versus bus, you know, mighty mighty Boston's. Um, they're doing a concert. It's, it's a big thing. They'll play at Fenway. They'll, really? So like the yeah. impression that I get is bigger than Sweet Emotion. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying that you know, 
Aerosmith um, didn't really do anything in particular to sort of endear themselves to Bostonians. They never shouted out or said, we are Boston or, you know, had any songs that were about it um, that I know of. I'm not, I don't know their entire catalog, but um, they, they don't sort of, in any way, you know, Eddie Vedder plays at Wrigley and, and goes behind and does a, um, you know, an acoustic set to inside the locker room and he shows up at games wearing a cap. Um, those are just those little kind of things and moments that really endear certain people or bands to a city that I don't think Aerosmith has ever done. No. I think the only thing I can think of that's even like on that plane is Ben Affleck. That like he shows up at every sporting event. He loves his he loves his Boston sports. Damon's in there too. Sure. You know. Oh yeah. They all, oh, they're yeah. always together oh, yeah. linked. Yeah, they love it. They they're they're at the games. They're there hanging out. Um, but when it comes to a band, I mean, is so I know this is going to sound crazy. <laughs> is Boston from Boston? I I do not know that. Oh that's, my god, we should have done a Google search before. <laughs> the the Google's good sometimes. Yeah. Um, because you've got that album at least, right? So that's if that's a Boston album. Because I don't even know if there's a guy from Chicago. From tell Chicago? you, it's, it's really weird if they're not from Boston. That would be the weirder <laughs> thing <laughs> if they're from Chicago. And they just yeah. decide let's call themselves Boston. <laughs> they're all they're all from Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, and they're all, they're rock- what do they, you yeah, think Boston for band sounds name? Great. Baltimore? No, no, let's do Boston. Too many syllables. Yeah, yeah. We love it's Boston. <laughs> Uh, what do you do have a um, band that you feel uh, of any genre um, sort of encapsulates uh, was really just Chicago through and through, you know, because I I can think of certain you mentioned Affleck. And when I think of like um, Chicago guys, like the way uh, Belushi Mm -hmm. seems to be that Jim Belushi's a hanger on Vince Vaughn's a hanger on. uh, um, Let's see here. uh, John Cusack's a hanger on uh, Eddie Vedder's a hanger on. I mean, I I think that, uh, it's it, his story's weird, you know, because he while he grew up here in his formative years, he didn't really spend his teenage years here, right. uh, or I say here, but I'm you know in New York, but uh, I meant Chicago. Yeah. Uh, so like he's a uh, it's a, it's a, it's a weird kind of case, you know. Um, but, but but you he, don't think you don't you don't have a, you don't have a particular band that you're like do you think of? It's like the epitome of Chicago bands. Yeah. So there's a couple I would say that. Um, uh, so Sticks is from Chicago. Right? <laughs> Coming in strong. <laughs> Sticks. Oof. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, you've got Sticks. You've. You've got to get past Sticks. <laughs> Come sail away, Rob. Uh, Mr. Obato. <laughs> uh, we've got Rockford's own uh, Cheap Trick. Okay. And they're in okay. town actually this weekend in New York. Oh. Yeah, uh, so that's that's a that's a turner event. Um, I'm trying to think who else we got here. So uh, we got Kanye. Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah, we got Common. Like, yeah, it seems like uh, hip hop is well represented in in Chicago. Yeah, uh, Chance the Rapper. Yep. Um, I, I'm sure someone's going to tweet at me after this and be like, "You asshole!" There's like five <laughs> more. <laughs> um, I think is uh, I, this is uh, this is good. might be embarrassing, but I think Fall Out Boys from Chicago too, aren't they? Um, I, I definitely don't know that. Um, I think Pete Wentz is a Chicago guy. Hmm. Uh, so then you got Local H, their one, and they had their one hit in the 90s. Yeah, I, I remember the band. Yeah, Bound for the Floor, hmm. that song in particular. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Chicago. Um, See, yeah. I would have thought more, but 
but um, that's good. There's, there's, there's many other things. Uh, as soon as this podcast is over, I'm like, son of a bitch, I didn't mention those. <laughs> you know? uh, so, yeah, so I'd say if the, the prototypical uh, Chicago band is Sticks. <laughs> the biggest band ever to come from Chicago. Band ever. Stock, yeah, yeah, they couldn't even get along. Do you think that the, um, as a non-Chicago guy, I my <laughs> my musical memory of like Chicago songs is always the Super Bowl Shuffle. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I like. If you said to me, "What's a Chicago song?" Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond uh, "Go Cubs Go" or or "Take Me to the Ball Game." I would, I would. That's what I think of, like as a song. If it, if they were, if we were to take it to song level of what mm-hmm. it, what uh, captures it, um, that's where I'm going. Was there a cameo in particular that stands out for you during the super uh, the the? Uh... Oh my God! It's such a rich video in general. Yeah. Um, I think the get up, the the typical of the time, the the Jim McMahon look. Is so such a classic look. Like the Ray Bans today. He's, he's got the the. I think he's got the glasses and the headband the going. Ruse headband. Yeah, um, that's a pretty good one. Um, I know it's not a cameo, but I I like um, also the summing up, especially in that time when it's like the early days of hip hop, and it's like, hey, I think I think anybody could do this. I love the awkward <laughs> white guy getting into it who doesn't actually know it or is any good at it. When I think of you saying that, I think of Gary Fensick. Gary Fenton. Oh, he's a safety for the Bears. He uh, graduated from an Ivy League school. Um, just rough rap. <laughs> <laughs> You're not buying the album. <laughs> and I, I, the only time I, I'm trying to think of like Super Bowl shuffle lyrics, I'm thinking the one that stands out the most is probably Walter Payton's um, They Call Me Sweetness and I Like to Dance, Running the Ball is Like Making Romance. I'm trying did, to think did of... Did he finish the thought as to why it's like romance? Or was that the... Did he leave on that note? I think no. I think there was a couple more verses on top of it, but because um, I would love to know the what that um, I would love to know why it's like uh, why it's like that. I'd love to know the explanation. Strategy. Yeah, it's knowing the the uh, motion in the ocean. Oh, yeah, that, that's, a, a, that, yeah, that's a big. That's a real thing. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought it was in and out, but no. Apparently, there's a real there's a real strategy to the rhythm. He's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, next subject. <laughs> <Anything>? <laughs> <laughs> that's what Walter Pay. That's what Walter inspires, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Is he? Um, where does he rank in the in prominence sports of sports lore for for Chicago? I mean, uh, behind, so I would probably put Jordan one. Sure. Um, and you know he's been gone for so long. So there's probably new, like you know he's got to be way up there though no yeah he was just the face of that franchise for so long and it's such a, like uh I'd probably out of the eighty five Bears he's probably the most recognizable even though he he was at the tail end and it was kind of a win if I understand correctly it was a win it for him kind of moment he's at the tail end of his career he's not the feature guy anymore well he was still the feature guy he's probably three years away from retirement at that point um i think the the biggest thing that really kind of comes out of those stories and i think you saw the bears 30 for 30 where it's like that sad story of buddy ryan yeah i mean it's brutal that's a rough one um but sweetness is more of like i think the big controversy was that he didn't score a touchdown in the super bowl when they blew out your patriots yeah i do recall that tony eason spending (laughs) half that game looking up from his back (laughs) 
<laughs> it's rough. That 85 Bears team just figured out a cheat code, and they just like they, they destroyed everybody. I saw something today that uh, from that season, and it was uh, the Detroit starting quarterback. I should have showed you this. I think we were both still groggy from getting up as our first actual night of sleep. Yeah. Um, but like this dude just got lit. Wilbur Marshall just laid this what kid out, name? dude. I don't even know his name. <laughs> it's like number fourteen. It's like so it's pre Barry Sanders. It's like oh. it's like the Lions are just like a, a charity case. <laughs> they're just donating wins to every team they're playing at that point, <laughs> you know. Um, so this kid just gets like just rocked, and uh, I know the backup name was Kipple. Because they show him and the announcer's like messing it up. But this kid like got hit so hard right underneath the chin. He went full on stretcher in midair and landed on the back of his head. And that seems like to be the theme of that 85 Bears team. They just destroying people's future. They were just winning so many one on one battles that it was just, it just wasn't happening. You couldn't move the ball, you know? Um, And we haven't seen that since. So, I mean, it's been a a pretty lowly Bears, Bears fandom. Since '85, and I was three, so I didn't even really get a chance to enjoy it. I wonder, you know, I wonder how many like, I wonder how many lifelong injuries they they were able to sustain <laughs> people just that year alone. Like that, they probably got that record in itself. Like just the amount of devastation they they wreaked on people during that time. Like that, they were just uh... so big and powerful and um, crushing on defense. They just were brutal. And it's like they, it's in that era when anything went too. Like there was no protection now in the quarterback. These oh, guys yeah. are just getting creamed left and right. There's it, on the highlight I saw today. There would have definitely been a flag in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe an ejection. There was like helmet right to the crown of the helmet, right to the chin. This guy was just like I, I, the the highlight. This gives you an idea. So the the hit happened within about 15 seconds of the of the, the highlight. The highlight reel goes for about two minutes. The dude never gained consciousness in the entire two minutes of that oh, highlight. Just l- l- wiped out, dude. I, it's over. <laughs> it's lions. over. Poor it's like, Lions. Yeah. It's almost like the, uh, you know, in like our, our golden age of the WWF when you, like, you do the finishing move. When Hogan does his like leg drop, Yeah, it's over. Yeah, That's what it was like. Oh, it yeah. was just game over. Well, well, could you imagine the just how powerful, of all those moves, I have to say, for being the biggest guy in that, in that golden era, they gave him like the weakest finisher. Like you know, at least at least an Undertaker tombstone looks like it could hurt or, or do some damage. The Hogan leg drop is just like the weakest. It looks it like he tripped on a banana peel <laughs> and landed on like a, a guy who was already knocked out. Like there's just no power. A, yeah. I mean, this guy's like a six six. 300 oh, a monster. monster mark mcguire and they, and they yeah they give him this they give him such a a weak finisher when it's supposed to be the big moment the yeah. big pinnacle the big can't wait for this jimmy snooker <laughs> jimmy snooker's got the you know one of the all-time best but they really kind of i feel like that was a missed moment for them yeah yeah it's probably if, now that you're now that you bring it up to that light it's probably the weakest finishing move so I'll give you this. I have, I stopped watching the WWF. <laughs> it's been a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute. So like sure. uh, for those you know who are listening that might be big into wrestling, I'll just give you a straight up. I probably stopped watching <laughs> since like 1998. So that's where my knowledge is in. Uh, so uh, the Macho Man uh, elbow drop a, off the top rope. Good one. Fantastic. And I yep. uh, put his life on the limb every time. Uh, the Bret Michaels sharpshooter. Remember that one? Is Shawn Michael? No, I think you. Oh, no, I think I'm, you. Mashed, I'm Brett the Hitman Hart. Brett the, the Hitman Hart. Yeah, that's yeah. a good move. 
Good move. What was Brett Michaels? The, it was the leg kick, right? Shawn Michaels. Throw, Shawn Michaels would yeah. throw you off the uh, Give you rope. the. I think they called it the sweet chin music, something sweet. like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he'd give you a big, solid leg kick. Do you remember? So when I think of like wrestling in that time period, I think of like two events for some reason. I think of the Macho Man and Hulk Hogan combination where they called the Mega Towers. Is that right? Mega Powers. Mega Powers. And then they broke up over Queen Elizabeth okay. in the back room. I remember that being like a major plot point. And then I remember Ricky the Dragon Steamboat getting uh, his, his uh, throat knocked out. Is that a real thing? I don't remember the, the throat knock. I remember the Mega Powers. They were, you know, they were they were a force to be reckoned with. But uh, I don't remember a Steamboat um, mm. knockout. But I think he also, speaking of finishers, I think if I recall, he had a pretty nice off-the-top finisher. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the more athletic uh, guys of that era, you know, yeah, he, he was, was. He was not a he was not a uh, one man gang who could um, just kind of hang around for <laughs> hang around for eight eight to twelve <laughs> minutes, and maybe the as athletic as they got was the splash. You know, it was like the classic WWE or WWF at that time, the classic fat man move, yeah. the King Kong Bundy one man gang, which is just. Um, we can't get you to crawl up the ropes or do anything remotely athletic. So all you're going to do is land yeah. on. You're just going to kind of collapse. So eat the, the turnbuckle. <laughs> eat the turnbuckle. <laughs> right, it almost fails. <laughs> right. I, I like. I like that. That that's an option on the table. Is just look. It may not be athletic. So let's let's think of a plan B. Do yeah. we got a chair? Do we got a turnbuckle? Do we got a? Uh, can you spit something? Can you make fire? Let's just That's think of the That's what Ricky theatrics. the Dragon Deembo, Dream, uh, oh, he did the, the fire. Steamboat did. He did the fire. <clears throat> I forgot about that. What an interesting time, though, because you got the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. You've got uh, Yokozuna. He's in that oh, mix. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, you've got uh, Jake the Snake. Yokozuna, a... I think, did the did a similar leg droppy finish. No, it was uh, so he would he would uh, take the his his opponent <laughs> yeah. into the corner. Okay, and then I think he'd get on like the second rope because of course like that dude's so big, there's no way he's getting to the top rope. No, right? and then I think he would turn his back to him and then jump on him with a butt a butt jump. <laughs> oh, you're right. Right, I think that was the whole thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was his finishing old, move. The old butt jump. <laughs> the old butt jump. Just two cheeks right on top of your chest. Game over. Well, you know, in terms of in terms of you know the gravity of that, I guess that is that is a lot. You know, that yeah. I feel like that would that would wreak some havoc on on the average person's chest. But how much money would it take for you? To get the Yokozuna, whatever that, that, that finishing well, move is. Well, so there was, um, in, in the latter stage, there was this guy, I think his name, uh, I don't remember his name, but they took it, you know, the WWE took a turn for the, the went from a PG-ish to like a PG-13, almost R-rated for a while. I don't, I, I'm also out of the game in terms of <laughs> full disclosure yeah. as well. But um, they had this guy that would wear almost the thong and his finisher was throw you throw, I think I saw this on the subway earlier today. <laughs> throw you in the corner and then mash mash his ass cheeks into your face. That oh. was his that was his signature move. And we don't ass remember that cheek guy's to the name? face. Um I came with an R. It was either like uh, uh something I don't know. But um that was the guy's signature move. So when I think of the Yokozuna, even just if the comparison is 
how much would it take? I would take the the Yokozuna Splash. I think it might have been called the Splash. It might have been um, over that one any day. But I would say if I'm if I'm choosing any of these finishers, those are at the bottom of the list. Yeah. Just having that guy in my face, um, sitting on my chest, that is not that is not a good afternoon for me. No. I think one of the funnest parts about looking back at that era is DeAndre the Giant stories. Oh, God. I mean, it's just Classic one after the drinker. other. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's like him and Boggs are like the most ultimate <laughs> beer drinkers of all time, right? There was there was a great site, which I don't recall the name of, unfortunately, but that, that highlighted all these historic great booze bags. Mm-hmm. And um, the Andre stories are just immense. Do you remember any? Yeah, I... Um, I remember that, and the numbers are th- are off. I can I can say the numbers. I can't I can't get specific numbers. But Andre's story is that he could drink so much that nobody really knew his tolerance. So because he couldn't hit it, he just kept drinking, and they almost couldn't be enough hours in a day and enough drinks to actually ever get him that drunk at his size and weight. And um, they. They had a really hard... He had some back surgery uh, when he was into the WWE. And I guess in these early days when they were trying to put him under, they would ask how much a person could drink to try to gauge what um, what's going to knock him out. And uh, Vince McMahon was telling them that you know he could put back just liters of hard liquor and uh, liters of vodka, I guess was one of his drinks. And the doctors, <laughs> one, didn't believe it. And two, um, were just perplexed that they could even get enough to bring this guy down uh, based off of how much he drank. The numbers were just, the, I think the number I heard was around the 120, 126. Um, a, a day. No, um, I think in, in, there's a, I forget which wrestler was telling the story, but Andre apparently put back 126 um, or so around that ballpark beers in an evening. Unbelievable, and um, they said that was at a night out, and that um, prior to that he had been drinking wine with his meals. Um, just an epic what an number, animal. yeah. Andre too. Um, the thing that seems the the thing that I've heard about him over the past two is that um, Andre not only puts him back, but is just kind of a uh, into the hijinks when he's drinking. You know, there's a story about. Andre and uh, I think Dusty Rhodes around um, uh, WrestleMania in Madison Square Garden. What a twosome. Yeah. Um, Where they're hammered just well after it. And uh, Andre Andre steals a uh, a horse-drawn carriage. Him and Dusty, apparently him and Dusty Rhodes are driving around shit-faced in New York City, stolen this horse-drawn carriage, (laughs) riding around in the city. And then uh, get out at their hotel that they're at, which I think is not far from, from where it was in Midtown, and um, continue drinking and, and to the point where um, Andre passes out in the lot, in, um, in one of the hotel floors, and they're trying to mask him because they don't want, they don't want to get, they don't want any trouble. Um, and they find, um, I think they find a piano... Uh, a, a, um, a cover that was used for the piano in the lobby and they put it over him like he was a uh, storage or a piano or something and nope, apparently the, everyone left him alone for the night but Andre with Boggs um, that'd be a good uh, a good night of drinking oh. you get those two 
So what was the story with Boggs? So he, he would just pound case like three cases of beer on a plane. Is that what it is? <laughs> I'm sure every year it grows by like another case. <laughs> right. The story He's just gets 12 bigger. cases now. Yeah. Uh, so you're uh, so one of the one of the first times we hung out, we uh, we we went to Fenway Park, and uh, we saw uh, I think Wakefield started for the Sox. And then it uh, was a Wakefield. Start? I think it was a Wakefield wow. start. It was against Baltimore. It was a Friday night game. Uh, I think uh, JD Drew hit an oppo bomb. Wow! Uh, it was great. We had great seats. That was a fun time. Uh, love that. So when it comes to Boston sports, right? Yep. You're you're the guy for it. We have a okay. lot of these conversations. Go on. Uh, when it comes to Red Sox fame, where are we at when it comes to let's say the the Mount Rushmore of Red Sox? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. I think they're mostly agreed upon. I think you so. Won't it's find Yaz a ton Williams. Of, yeah, I mean, I mean, the only thing is with them, they've got some older players who were great um, that you know nobody sort of remembers. Uh, I mean, um, I think it was uh, what's uh, Jimmy Fox was a big Jimmy Sox guy Fox? for a while, but um, yeah, the the Mount Rushmore is um, if you're including the recent guys, you know, it was Yaz. It's well. It's kind of all those retired numbers up there. Um, there's no sort of uh, outliers, I don't think. Um, you got Yaz. Uh, you got Williams. Um, Fisk is definitely popular. He's in that realm. Pudgy. Twenty-seven. Um, yeah. Seventy-two. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and more recently, specifically, you've, you've definitely in, uh, got Ortiz and Pedro in that in that realm. Um, they're just. Uh, I think. The, the could-have-beens or the sort of outliers or Clemens, had he ended his career with them, had he continued down that path and, and stayed dominant under them, you know, he'd be a god. But um, there's also, you know, Boggs has a, has a, there's a good, um, there's a good solid memory of Boggs, but also the, the thing they say about that era of that team is they're not super well-liked and they used to call, they used to say, um, there would be 16 cabs for 16 players, meaning just they, they never really got along, were never communal. Um, it was They sort of build them as this kind of selfish group with Clemens and Boggs and Rice and players that aren't necessarily um, known for endearing themselves to others or, or as uh, clubhouse guys, so to speak. But, uh, you know, those, those guys, um, they're kind of sitting on the outside looking in, I think. The Boggs and the Clemenses. So, so, so Boggs, Clemens, Pedroia's on the outside. I'm guessing he's on the outside, but he's he's definitely well liked. There's there's the thing in Boston too where um, they love whether it's a legitimate thing or not. It doesn't seem to matter. They love that under uh, they love that under um, they love that underdog story. They love the smaller player. They love the scrappier player. They love the late round draft pick. Um, you know, and they was refer to the Red Sox. They call them dirt dogs, and it's like uh, the guy who's willing to get his jersey dirty at any turn. And so, even though they're all millionaires and and well to do, um, if they're if they're perceived as an underdog in any way, that just adds to the value. They love the undersized, under looked over, has to work, has to work twice as hard as the next person in line to get in that place. They just, it's like candy to them. They just eat up that story. Yeah, Chicago's so, very similar in that, in, that, in that vein. Now, now the other part of that, I would say, is the, the, the cheat to that is if you're just so dominant that we don't care anymore. Uh, so if you're, if you're an, uh, a Manny in 06 or 04 or whatever, or, you know, 
Brady and you know where we just say, oh, you're you don't fit that mold, but you're just really good. We we can live with that. Um, but they love those, you know, those Pedroia types, the Bobby Ors, those just no underside my. fighter, you know, that Boggs and Clemens also didn't really have that characteristic. Um, so if you can do both of those things, um, you're you're just perfect for boss. If you're undersized and overperforming, oh my god! It's like Julian Edelman's a god right now. Oh, they love that thing. They love that story. They want they want every athlete to be that. Um, they want you to be that. They they don't. This is why it's so tricky with all these um, big market signings for them is because those guys come in and just the the expectations are just unfairly through the roof. I mean, if someone signs a big contract and coming in, especially. If they're coming from another town, it's one thing if they get rewarded for their past experiences. If you know, if, if Lester was signed to a two hundred million dollar contract, he'd be given a lot of leeway based off of what he accomplished before with the team. But if David Price comes in, it's like, who's this guy? We got all these, you know, we got all these other guys, these scrappy guys that uh, we've been doing just fine with. Why does this guy get two hundred million versus the next guy? Why doesn't Pedroia get that money or whomever? That team from a distance always it chews up a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, like whether it's uh, the Josh Beckett, um, you know, the, the, the his exit left. Uh, it's the price currently. It's, um, but they mo- loved Beckett for, for a while. He won, he won, what, two World Series with them? I think or, so. Yeah, so I think 03, the one with the Marlins. And was it that offseason he became a Red Sox? Something like that. Maybe, uh, I don't know. Because Mike Lowell awesome. and Beckett were in the same deal, right? Right. Great deal for them. Great deal for the Sox. Yeah. Uh, but then they had, like, the one we were talking earlier. They had uh, the the Matt Clements and David Wells, and they've yeah. had, like, a mixture. They always they always take a chance. They're aggressive as hell. Yeah. You got to give it to them. You know? you <laughs> I got to give it to them. You got to give it to them sometimes. Well, dude, the white, like, coming from a White Sox fan, yeah. uh, all we hear about is all these guys they're supposed to sign but never do. Mm. You know, so it's interesting to see a team that actually does sign these guys, lets them kind of shit the bed, and then just gets rid of them. Carl Crawford. Yeah. You know? Well, that, I don't think, you know, you sign anybody envisioning, though, that they're going to shit the bed in 12 months <laughs> and you need you need another big market team to bail you out. I think you envision them, as I presume, as this is going to be a great long-term fit. The, you know, the, Manny, the ideal scenario being the Manny or Pedro. You get most of the high production through the length of that contract. And then you, if you have to eat a year or deal them at the end, fine. But um, I don't know what they were thinking with the the those two deals. But but you think you think Chicago is similar, just in the way they love that uh, underdog, scrappy kind of mentality, blue collar, if you will. Even though none of them are anything remotely close by pay scale to blue collar, um, you think that that Chicago has the same kind of love for that. For those type oh, of athletes. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like... So, we love our superstars. I mean, that's number one, I would say. So, you've got guys like... Uh, so, Erlocker had like... So, there's two a couple guys who had like kind of tumultuous times as superstars in Chicago. Give me some. Um, Erlocker is one of those guys who really? just... I thought he was... I thought he was beloved. So from a from the from the national perspective, there is a point of his career where he stopped talking to local media and he would only talk to national media. <laughs> okay. And so he became the face of the Bears and became the face of the NFL. But he always he had a knack for putting his foot in his mouth mm. when it comes to local you know. Not people. a good place for it. 
No, horrible. Uh, Frank Thomas was similar in that vein. Yeah, um, he yeah, was a I guy knew that about Thomas. Yeah, yeah, he's just a guy who was just unbelievable, and then he just couldn't get out of his own way uh, publicly. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and then uh, so like, but we do give a shit about the guys. We, we know who we love. I would say we love the antagonists. Or, oh yeah, we love them when they play for our team. And I don't so Ozzy Guillen, Ozzy as a manager, yes. Ozzy as a player <laughs> was a little annoying because every time he made an error, he acted injured. Really, that's just that's like such a that's such a uh, that's such a little league move. It's yeah, it's a total amateur. Uh, stuff. I I played my brother and I still joke about this today. We played with this guy uh, Johnny. Uh, I think his last name is Matus. And uh, when he would strike out, you know, he'd do the dramatic K where he bowls over after he whiffs and clutches his he clutches yeah, his yeah. rib because it couldn't have been athleticism. An, <laughs> he clutches his rib or holds his arm like the bat. You know, the second he misses that pitch, the bat drops and he's got the arm in a sling. And so, it, you know, he never had to answer for his his shitty play. It was just, oh, are you okay, Johnny? He's like, yeah, I think I'll pull through this time. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying was, that was that was Ozzy? That was Ozzy, wow. yeah. Maybe. Do you think Johnny got, because this would have been time appropriate, Did, do you think Johnny picked that up from Ozzy? Because I'm guessing Ozzy didn't pick it up from Johnny, but... I'm sure it's... So there's been that theme. I mean, you know one in particular, the Paul Pierce wheelchair. That's like one of <laughs> yeah. my favorite sports moments of all time. It's like this guy gets injured during the game, and you would have thought he was like shot. Yeah. Right. I mean, just no chances, dude. He's done for the series, probably. Yeah. Maybe career ending. Maybe career ending. Yeah. I mean, it's like the whole Boston bench is out there. There's dudes just like almost on the verge of tears. It had the gravity at the time. It had the gravity of the Gordon Hayward injury, where just everyone is like, "Oh my God, that's that's yeah. brutal." This yeah. Is- I feel so bad for him. Yeah. And then what is it? A quarter later, he's Maybe coming. Fifteen out. minutes, sixteen minutes. He's carried into the locker room. Yeah, he can't even walk under his own power. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, he's coming out in a wheelchair, starting the middle of the third quarter. Uh, so it's it one of those sports things. LeBron does that shit all the time. He's your boy, LeBron. Dude, uh, you know I. Uh, what does LeBron do all the time? Give me, give me what LeBron does all the time. Okay, so um, he's probably the most cramped up athlete in the history of sports. It's he gets a, a cramp it, now and again. He's it's almost once a finals he gets a cramp, and then he has got to sit out and come back and be awesome. Uh, my favorite one in particular is the I want to say it was the championship against Golden State. So we're talking Game Seven. So there's that moment where he goes on that fast break and he swats Iguodala off the backboard. Yeah. Huge play that's going to get played in NBA highlight reels forever. It's an amazing play. Amazing yes. play. Give him all the credit in the world. And then literally within a couple possessions, he goes to slam it on Draymond Green and just gets hammered for a foul. Well, he lands awkwardly, right? So instead of just popping up and being a normal human being, he just takes full advantage of the moment. You know, he's down, he's rolling around, grabbing his arm. He's done, you know? There's just no way he's coming back from this injury. And then the whole bench is out there. We got to go to a commercial break because it's so bad, right? So now we're four or five minutes into him rolling around on the ground. And 20 minutes later, he's holding both trophies in the air with both hands as if it's like 20-pound trophies. It's like there's no way that hurt that bad. You're being a dick. You're being a dick. So it's like, I don't know. I just I, LeBron's you just one of those. exaggerates. 
Yeah, I, I wish I, I. So we had this conversation yeah. earlier this weekend. I, I love LeBron. I think he's like a. I don't love him, but he's in the Mount Rushmore of basketball. He's got to be in the conversation in the top five players of all time. So I have a question for you. Such an asshole. That's on topic. Yeah. Um, because my thing is with with the thing you mentioned with Pierce or LeBron or um, any other thing where we're not there and you can't see an actual snapped, you know bone or brutal thing where you know that they're injured yeah so there's a point as a viewer where you're sort of taking them at their word right we don't know if lebron's actually cramped what was paul pierce's nickname the truth yeah right (laughs) so we don't know we don't know where they're whether they're how actually injured they are right i mean i guess they come back from it so i always it's funny you say this because i always like question jordan's flu game really yeah because how can to the same degree when the dramatic TV the dramatic moment arises and the TV cameras pan over and he's in the huddle and now now he's just been playing thirty minutes he's dunking he's driving in the lane he's making his shots he's playing at Jordan typical Jordan I think levels he had like thirty seven points or something yeah, he's at the typical Jordan peak moments yeah now he's playing all these games but when it cuts to a TV timeout and he goes to the huddle he can't stand. He can't. He needs yeah. Pippen to hold him up. Pippen's hold. We all know that image. Yeah. So, so how is it that he can do? He can run and jump and dunk a ten foot thing, but he can't stand up when the we can't stand up during a huddle because he's so sick all of a sudden. So, when's the last time you've watched that game? Um, it's been a while. Probably so probably since live. I it. Probably live. Yeah. Um, so I have this DVD that uh, highlights one game from every Bulls championship. It's like six games total. It's about four discs. So I've I've watched that. It's been it's been probably five years, but I watched that game in particular, and he's sluggish the entire time. He's uh, doing old man Jordan. I mean, it's the backing down fadeaways. He's literally like he's taking plays off throughout the game. You can mm-hmm. see him in the corner, just kind of just like holding on to his shorts. But we still have to take him at his word that he's as sick as he says. Yeah, I, I don't I don't question it. I mean, because when, when else is uh, Michael Jordan, they have to question his credibility when it comes to being honest. I, I don't think he's ever hidden from it. I mean, has, has he? I don't know. I don't know, but but I, I just, I remember those TV timeouts is when he's hanging on the guys and he can't stand his, it seems to me an overdramatic play at that moment. It's like, he's not doing that on the court, but now five seconds later, he can't stand. He just He just ran up and down the court and dunked it, but now five seconds later... Um, he Pippen hold me up. I'm 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 done. Yeah, I I I, I was questioned. I questioned that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and I think um, you know, the the part of the other reason I question is because Jordan was always the ultimate um save face guy. He knew how to speak to the crowd. He knew how to be good on TV and um always kind of uh hid that sort of competitive competitive nature or or whatever he could. He was always a great upstanding citizen of the NBA in his day. He was like the perfect uh, face of that league. So, I, you know, I think that those things do happen in sports for sure, where they play to the moment. And I think that, you know, there are, these players are conscious of their legacy too. So they want to they hear that story that, oh, this guy played through this injury and had this thing. I mean, you know, I've heard what... I presume to be paranoid, but I guess I don't know for sure. But I've heard Yankees fans say the Kurt Schilling thing was staged. Yeah, the blood—it's ketchup. Yeah, yeah. 
which is like the such the obvious uh, blood thing. I think those guys who get fake blood or any red dye or anything, it's always like, oh, it's ketchup. That's yeah. like the default uh, blood substitute. But, uh, uh, you know, I've heard that story before, too, that people don't buy that he was that hurt or that there was blood creasing from the sock. Well, so. that's one of those tough things because you just don't know, right? But yeah. I, I, remember, I remember that time in particular because I was probably 20, what, 22. Um, so I was really into, like, uh, the 2000s is probably one of the things I... I look at fondly, but uh, I remember the hype before that game, and literally, like they were talking about taking pig tissue, putting it in as Achilles, right, <laughs> like as a surgery, and then lynching that up, and then whatever was going to happen happened. It's tough to take them at their word at that point. It really is. But I mean, anybody who's been injured knows that there's like a little there's there's injured and there's hurt. Right. Right. So. A lot of it's one of those things that I don't know how you can be a pitcher and it's your push off foot and like literally like how you're getting your extension on your release and all that stuff. I don't know how you can play with a lack of an Achilles tendon, but uh, I don't. I, there's one of those I just don't seem to question though, you know, because he did. It was it was an unbelievable performance. But is know? that why you don't question? Because you like the idea of this memory and this thing. I'm sure a little bit goes into that. I'm sure a little bit. I just, I don't see a reason that you'd have to tell a fib there. Do you? I, I just don't. Well, it wasn't him telling the fib. It was sort of the built up, um, you know, by the, during the timeout I was talking about when they cut to it, it's the announcers going, and look at him. Oh, he's just it amazing. Can't, he can't. The show off, of you know. courage. He was getting, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. I, I don't even remember, but I imagine, you know, the announcers, um, that's the narrative on that game. And he's the face. Of course, they want... Um, they want to make this is their big moment. It's it's uh, they want to make this as dramatic as they can. And I'm not I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying that I uh, I similarly when when these things happen um, question whether the there it's actually happening or they're hurt or how hurt they are. They sometimes they're just trying to buy time. You know I think that's a factor too. Like you see it a in lot the in NFL, the NFL. They're, yeah. they're on the ground when on soccer. Certainly that mm-hmm. happens. Because they're trying to get a call, um, and Manu Ginobili, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he loves that. Um, so I think it's I think it's multiple things, but I think that um, I don't know if I don't know if LeBron does that to me, anyways, more than you know the next guy. You know, I th- I think he's who knows maybe he he doesn't drink enough water. Maybe he was <laughs> feeling. Maybe he's a crampy guy. Maybe he, he just. I mean. I don't fashion myself a crampy guy, so I can't uh, relate to that. But you know, some people I know uh, they get cramped up frequently, and they're not even athletic. Hmm. I, 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 yeah, you're not buying it though. It's okay. You don't have to buy LeBron's. You don't have to buy LeBron's uh, antics. It's just a, there's a part of LeBron that just drives me nuts, and I wish he would just take it as more of a man. You know, it's like we 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 have our American idols. Right, not the show, but in in like reality, we have these guys in sports in particular, like the Bradys, like the Jeters, um, like the Jordans, uh, that kind of shown up in the biggest moments and kind of succeeded, right? And LeBron's had his fair share. I mean, he's 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 won three finals or four. I don't I don't remember the number, but a lot. It's right yeah. there. He's yeah, been yeah. to a hundred. It feels yeah. like every <laughs> right. decade. Yeah. 
he's the he's 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 like you know they they always pass that torch from an NBA player when I mean right now it's yeah, LeBron before that it was Kobe before that yeah. it was Jordan maybe like a year of McGrady or two um, Shaq well he had his moment but not not long lived because he was caught between the Kobe and Jordan era right yeah but he's dominant as hell the the problem with the problem with the guy is that he just doesn't from a from a personality standpoint and from the from the way that you see him play the game he's just not in that same vein you know and it's just it's tough and, I, and you know maybe maybe it's the decision maybe that's maybe that's what's like kind of going into it and it always comes back to that right but it was just like not one of the worst moment, pr obviously. moves in the history yeah, of sports he went on national tv and broke up with the city yeah and he just he, then they went on the villain move for a couple years with Miami. Probably brought a, more attention to the NBA than pff, I couldn't even remember a, a more fever pitch time for the NBA those first few years. Well, I don't think insane. there's ever been a time, you know, perhaps in its history. I, you know, um, I'm not an expert, but the I don't think there's ever been a time where a, a marquee talent of the definitive without question best player of the generation comes on to the open market and free agency um at their peak at their prime i mean he must have been 26 or 7 years old and just especially the way basketball is one player can alter franchise in in the history of it in such dramatic fashion that I don't know that that's ever existed where you've got a Jordan on the market or you've got a Magic Johnson or or just these all-time great talents just in their prime and willing to go to a multi multiple teams meaning like just willing to meet willing to uh, um, at least engage the idea of going to a different team. Yeah. Um, I mean he there were reports every week he was visiting which you I don't you might deny this to this day. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when we were at that game at Fenway, I believe this is when he was in free agency, and you were convinced he was going to Chicago at a point in time. You, felt good about it. You thought he was going to be a bull. And that, you had at, all the reasons. And at, what, What's really funny is someone, as an outsider who has friends from multiple cities and, and, and different fan bases that had weighed in on the subject, they, they all made a a compelling case as to why he was going to go to their city. You know, I was I was in New York at the time and listening to Knicks fans saying, well, you know, the market and the money and then, you know, all, all these reasons uh, why, and, and I forget exactly the Chicago line of thinking, but it was just kind of funny to hear all these different fan bases. It was so anticipated, such a moment. Um, I think that also contributes to why it is so heartbreaking for that city of Cleveland and, and that he... It was such a big moment and such a big thing to have their their guy, their savior, um, break up with them in such a public fashion is devastating. And one they, you know, I think though the the, the moral of this story is how willing, um, how winning really does uh, ease all pain. And that, you know, LeBron came back and they were like, after many years, and they're just like, okay. Yeah, sure. We'll take you right back. Please, thank you oh, very you're much. Oh, coming home so great. We love you again. Yeah. We absolutely adore you now. You're back, and we welcome you with open arms. If anybody's going to do that, it's the Cleveland fan base. <laughs> Any fan base would do that, don't yeah. you think? Yeah, at a, scale, at a player his scale, I was just trying to be funny. This horrible <laughs> attempt. <laughs> well, I, I just think that um, he, 
he always carries that. But I think I think he's also uh, he's a guy who's not perfect with the media and never kind of he has his moments where he he says some really uh, he really kind of steps up or says some, some says some really pointed things or um, is really comes across as profound or interesting and then but a lot of I think his career as well is um, sort of struggling in the limelight as as being this face of the NBA you know because I think he sort of you know his two idols he talked about a lot were were were, uh, Jordan and Kobe and I think he took a, a lot from both of them in his game as well but Jordan kind of did the um, public, what he really nailed um, as this face of the NBA for so many years was just he kept up this this perfect this this perfect image um, where he just always said the right thing mm-hmm. he was always in front of the camera he was always comfortable with it he um, just never slipped up there's no press conference no side interview no no moment that I can ever recall at least on a national level where you said he made headlines for some flap. Um, or rubbed people the wrong way. He was just so he's loved. Spent a career not being in trouble. I yeah, mean, the guy is like he's he's got his nose clean. You don't hear LeBron crazy stories. You just he's just to the book. He's got a you know he's got a he's a strong family person. Um, he does. It seems to be like he's like uh, he's a family guy. He's taken that persona, you know. And uh, but he's never held the room well as a media guy, which is what something Jordan mastered. Mastered. Um, and and Kobe struggled with that too. I think he, Kobe in the first part of his career tried to emulate Jordan and say, "Well, I'm going to put up this, you know, this polite um, kind of cordial relationship with the media and whatever." But but I think Kobe, at a point in his career, and I don't remember when exactly it happened, he kind of threw that aside and said, "You know what? Know what? I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm a competitive. I'm a super hyper competitive motherfucker, mm-hmm. and I want to let you all know that. And I'm not gonna hold back. And I'm not. I'm gonna call players out. I'm gonna call my coach out. I'm gonna rip into every um, body, and I'm, I'm gonna let you know. You know, I think that's when the Black Mamba nickname." came about yeah it was like i'm not holding back i'm not being this poster child um spokesperson p always pr friendly and 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 i'm not saying uh jordan wasn't uh built to do that or he was being disingenuous um i'm saying that kobe kobe's a different person and he he tried to kind of play that move for a while and he was just like after point he was just like fuck this uh, it's not who I am. Yeah. Maybe that's who he is, but it's not me, and I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play that part. I'm gonna let you know who I am, and I'm gonna. I'm gonna go rip roaring in. And I think. I think LeBron in the first part of his career really tried to be that spokesperson, that PR guy as well. And then at times he played that sort of villainous role of like, you know, where he was a little more defiant, a little more. Um, you know, all the haters. Um, you know, after the decision, and you know, you refer to things you say, all those haters out there, and. You know, people against us, and kind of took that role for a bit, and and you know, but I think he could sort of struggle with that public persona as being the face of a, which is obviously not an easy thing to do, but being the face of a league declared. You yeah, know, not every yeah, sport yeah. has that. That's the other he was thing crowned. too. Yeah, he's literally crowned in, in, you know, in in baseball or in NFL. There's not a lot of time periods where they they say without question, you are the best player without question in the sport, and will be for the next potentially five 
plus years. There's not a lot of instances where that happens too. So yeah. Well, let me let me go back a little bit. So I'll, the, the first question. So the first thing that we we, we ju- you just said a lot of stuff there. So let me try to unpack a little bit. Um, LeBron going to Chicago and New York, right? That's one of the things you talked about initially. Um, I was convinced he was going to Chicago or New York because it made the most sense from a logical standpoint financially. I really was. And so when he doesn't go to one of those, those probably made the most sense because they were the most built to win. Um, so I got it. I think what made it, what made that whole thing odd and what made it kind of like a villainous move was that he could have just brought Wade and Bosch to Cleveland and wouldn't have nearly had the, the PR disaster he had. It was not only declaring, breaking up with the city that night, going into a, a different town, but then the pep rally the next day of how many championships they're going to win. So there's that. So when I think of LeBron's moments, right? So like when, you're, when, you, when you look in like retrospect of these superstars, you've got Jordan, you've got... Uh, You've got the I don't know what's going on Portland six threes. You've got the over under against Sammy Perkins and the Lakers. You've got, you've got the uh, you've you've got him going against the flu game. You've got him his final shot as a bull. You've got all these great moments that you just kind of you know collect. Mm-hmm. Kobe, you've got the eighty one points. You've got that little oopie through to Shaq in that one in the finals. Mm-hmm. You, he he defeated a lot of major like like uh, opponents. Um, he, he just, there's, there's those times where he just was like, there's at least three years in a row there where it was just like fro Kobe that you just couldn't stop him. He won the slam dunk contest. Of course, Jordan had all that too. Um, when it comes to LeBron and you think of what his greatest moments are, what are they? What are they? And, and to me, I see there's that one, there's that one conference finals against Detroit that he he has a fourth quarter of like 30 points. It's just insane. Um, after that, it comes into, here's what I think, the decision. I think of him quitting against the, the Celtics in his last year against Cleveland. I think of him quitting his last year in Miami against San Antonio. That's what comes to my mind. And I think of like, and like again, like that Iguodala block is one of those situations where it's like it's just this major moment. And he can literally in the same, in the, within, multi, within a couple possessions, tear it down. And it's just... Let's see. I don't. I. I don't remember those. The theatrics. I remember that moment of the block. That's what I remember. I remember that in impressive moment. But you're right. He doesn't. He doesn't necessarily have as many big singular moments as. I mean, and and to be fair, you're comparing him to pretty elite. Uh, yeah, but that's the that's the air he's in. He's the right. He's the ring bearer of the NBA, and he's been for a decade. And he's the he's the picture of excellence. So, it's like it's like we're talking like uh, about like Beatles albums, right? Yeah, they're all great. They're right. all fantastic. Some are bigger than others, but the the margin of error between them is so small that every critique matters. Right. Right. And so when we're talking about a guy who, like who's in the same conversations of Bird, Magic, Jordan. Kobe and we hear it all the time from a national perspective is like it's that's the comparisons Jordan LeBron yeah. and you hear you hear a group of people saying yeah, he's better than Jordan you know and so it's I guess fair. that's what kind of makes it a little bit complicated and I hate these conversations in general because it makes me sound like I uh, anybody who's like not in the business end of that conversation is you're almost like putting them down but we're talking about a top five player in the NBA history yeah top 10 player definitely top 10 possibly no top five but who knows where he's still playing still so who playing knows where so net out yeah and so I mean, like, if he wins 
three more championships. I mean, he's getting into really rare territory. But yeah, yeah, he, he, he doesn't have quite as many of those moments. But, you know, um, I think I think that's... Um, I think that's sort of secondary, though, to, to an accomplishment, right? Does the fact that he doesn't have those signature TV moments matter if he's got seven finals appearances in a row and three MVPs and three or four or whatever he's got for championships? Um, he's like I that mean, ultimate... Duncan doesn't have any moments. He's got zero. His only moments are winning and ho- hoisting trophies. Now, he's the best power forward probably to ever play the game. He's, he's a top 10 for sure. Now, he's not the heir apparent, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but would Jordan be any less if he didn't have the flu game, if he didn't have the uh, Cleveland shot, um, if he didn't have those four things you mentioned? Would he be any less? I think it would take away from the the legacy. Really? Yeah, I mean, sure. Cause it's like I mean, he got... still won six in a row. And yeah, yeah, but it, that's part of the whole story. You know, so it's like you've got the you got the pre Jordan winning and you got the post Jordan winning, and they're two they're almost two completely different players. You know, so there's um, you're looking for romance, is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm looking for a reason to love the guy, and it just it just doesn't come. I mean, it's uh, style. It's like he's like the best. So when what makes LeBron win is that he's the most athletically gifted player on the court at all times. He's just he's uh, he's 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 the strongest. He's the fastest. He's the quickest, and uh, he he's get he you know like and, and Jordan is the same way. This is not this is not new to the superstar. They get the royal treatment from the referees. They can yeah. do whatever they want to do. So they get these moves going. They're traveling. They're they're overpowering guys to the hoop. It's just the way it is. Um, what makes LeBron LeBron and what makes him a champion isn't so much of those individual accolades to me. It means more that he was just such a great passer. Such a great rebounder. He could play multiple positions. He can bulldog you to the hoop. No one can stay in front of him. Yeah, he's he almost has a flawless game. Altogether. He does, and it's more team based from an right. individual standpoint. He just doesn't have those moments. But aren't you, you know? Know, at least uh, you know the things I remember in recent years with with LeBron is um, the fact that he almost won. A fi- there was there was a serious debate at the time about naming him. Could they name him a Finals MVP even if Cleveland lost in that first the uh, first showdown Warriors Cavs where he was just insane and carrying the team on his back and I think maybe Kyrie and uh, Love got hurt I don't remember yeah but, both got hurt and he just put that whole team on his back and went to another level mm-hmm. but obviously you you know it's hard to hold him accountable if if Jordan never had to go to the finals without a Pippen or a Rodman and a Horace Grant injured at the time. Would he have the perfect record? Who knows? It doesn't. It doesn't really matter because history is history, and you can't. You can't change yeah, it. But, yeah. but that's a tough thing to overcome. And to me, I look back and I'm like, that was an, one of the best performances in a finals I've ever seen in my life. Maybe the best. Yeah. I mean, that was really impressive. And he gets credit for that. I, I, I would like. To, I give him credit for that. I, I do. I don't want to. I don't want to under like misunder like you know um, undervalue that aspect of it and I, I really do appreciate him as like uh i enjoy watching him play for the most part i think there's just he's just got a style he's got a lot of just, baggage too i think that's part of it he's just got a tough. lot of baggage <laughs> yeah yeah and it's, he's a know. polarizing figure whether it's through his own through his own actions or not he's a polarizing figure um 
you know, you don't find a lot of uh, mez on him. You find a lot of I really love him and into him, or I don't like him. Yeah, there's a there's a couple guys whose ploys are so are so obvious that it makes it's just like that's just what they do. Every time the Sox got in the losing streak, Ozzy would make some kind of ridiculous comment to get the heat back on him. It was it was it was clockwork every time. That's when he was talking the gay stuff. That's when he was doing everything oh, yeah, he was doing. Right. You know, I mean, he had to go through like anger management or whatever, like sensitivity classes after those comments. LeBron's the exact same every January, no matter what team he's on, is he needs help. He calls out his team publicly. Uh, it's, it's usually after that. This this year's a little bit different because I feel like he hasn't exactly called them out publicly. Wade actually took that, I think, in the last couple of weeks. He kind of called out the starters right. of Cleveland. Um so he's got that. He's he's like clockwork. You'll see in January, like the no one else is playing up to his standards, and he's, you know, he's got to carry him. And it's a good it's a good motivating tactic because it gets them to do things. Last year, it got it got the GM to get Corver, and it got them to kind of make some deals. And they they signed Rose this year, and they're trying to compete, you know, and they're they're doing a good job of it. But is it is it too late? Is LeBron actually? Are we seeing him on on the downfall of his playing career? I don't think so yet. I th- I think that I think that each, you know, I think he's a guy that's constantly questioned. Um, you know, like the fact that he hasn't been an MVP in how many years now, is is slightly ridiculous. I mean, he's it's a rare air that um, everyone in the sport acknowledges and agrees who the best player is, but who doesn't win the MVP year in and year out, and and it's an odd thing that. In the way these, you know, we talked about this Hall of Fame before, in the way these accolades and voting happens, and that that writers and people who vote for awards will say, we don't like voting for the same person every year. They they literally say it. Um, so it's it it it's kind of laddering up or or going back to what I was saying before about how important public persona is. Um, you know, if if Wade Boggs was friendlier, would they have loved him more? Absolutely. He put up insane numbers. He had seven years of just oh, yeah. collecting 200 hits. Like nobody, you just set your clock to it. Wade Boggs was hitting 200, 200 hits every year. When, when does that ever happen in baseball with a guy for almost a decade that you can just bank on hitting 200 hits? Did they love him for it? Flash a little leather too, much. so he was like a combo guy. Had they known about the Wade Boggs drinking story before... That alone could have redeemed him to that area. What's with the Red Sox players in fried chicken and beer? It's like it's like a lore for them. It's like it's followed all their players throughout time. <laughs> Got well, Tito fired. Maybe they're just being honest about it. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's sort of a joke Chris Rock makes about like, you know, he talks about stereotypes and he says uh, watermelon. Have you ever had watermelon? It's delicious. You know, it's refreshing. And and I think fried chicken, you know, I think maybe fried chicken and beer are great. So Delicious. maybe they're just being honest about those things. I don't think that's an exclusive socks thing. I think, you know, if you took a poll of baseball players, I'm guessing and we're in the 90 percentile of how many like chicken and beer, fried chicken and beer. That's a good meal right there. It is. It is. I'm not hating on it. Yeah. It's just I, funny how it just keeps coming up in the press. It's like this, this, this staple. <laughs> Boston sports. There might just be a good local fried chicken joint too that they, they just order in a lot. Yeah. And, and for 25 years, the spot has been giving them some good, some good legs. And um, you know, 
it's hard to hard to fall Beckett in that situation or Lester for for um, you know sitting out a game for in lieu of some chicken. I mean, I know you're you're supposed to be in it all the time and watching and engaged, but you know you can can't you understand those human moments where you're like, yeah, but it would be nice to just kind of sit in this clubhouse right now and just have some fried chicken and maybe a beer. Yeah. Especially when you're not I'm not pitching, pitching Sounds three awesome. more days. Apparently, Burley was drunk when he came in for the uh, save in the 2005 World Series. He had no <laughs> thought that he was coming into that game. They told him that beforehand, so he started drinking in the clubhouse, and he was like, hey, uh, 856, start warming up out there. And uh, he did, and he came in and cl- shut the door. Is that, a, is that a well-known thing at this point, or is it? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, if you're a Sox fan, I think you know it. Um, it's kind of similar to that story of the, uh, the the Red Sox taking the shot of Jim Beam or whatever, Jack Daniels or whatever it is. And then, right. And like before that run, yeah. you know. Um, so do, when it comes to like Boston. Do you Boston, think that adds to it though? Do you think, because I think that's actually, you know, and I think maybe something teeing off with LeBron or whatever is, is the human moments where we all relate and endear to to athletes in a certain way, you know, when when Ortiz, aside of all his theatrics and, and great clutch moments, he won the city back or even doubly so when he dropped that f bomb um, on national TV because he he just epitomized the sentiment that everyone was feeling at that moment. Yeah, and yeah. I think that um, hearing those, I got drunk because I didn't know I had to. You know, it's like this a story you have at work. Like I did, I just drank too much tonight, and sorry, I'm shit today. Um, our Friday to Saturday, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our last and present forty-eight hours. But do you think that I feel like those human moments actually help and add to, to a, a player's legacy as well? Yeah, well, so it's interesting if you start looking at that. So, what, like, what makes Bird relatable? So, so Bird, Bird, and Bird kind of hit the reason why Bird is so popular is because he hit all those things at the right moment. Like he, he was clutch. You know, sort of saying how if you perform that can that will trump any you know perception of your public persona but but what really nailed it for him early on was a bunch of reporters because he actually came in with high expectations and was a big draft pick um, but early on um, when a bunch of reporters showed up to, to interview him at his house and he was out cutting his own grass and there was a a beat up pickup truck pulled out in front of his yard that he owned and drove around. They just were creaming themselves and <laughs> gushing. <laughs> they just were so enamored with this. Oh my God, he cuts his own grass and he, he talks about drinking beers and he, um, you know, he just really epitomized that um, blue collar sentiment that all those sports writers love and just wanted to write about and, and speak to. And so like very early on, he did that and it just made everyone love him that much more. So then you took that and then you add those, you know, though he, he also has those clutch moments where you talk about that, that people love. Oh yeah. Rivera, the moments of him is like, he's got a bunch. He's got the, stolen the by DJ. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the like, steal is an unbelievable moment and he has just, the bravado of walking off at the three-point three point contest, contest holding his finger yeah, up. And, yeah. you know, you he has that Bo Jackson um, type of um, sentiment now where, where you hear stories now and you don't even want to care or believe that they're false or true. There's just this Larry Legend mentality. So now every story that comes out about him is just about this, you know, absurd bravado that just adds depth and... and 
and uh, more fodder to his already like pretty pretty great resume. But there are all these stories now. Whenever they come out about Larry Bird, you'll, you'll see a, a story about him in the Boston papers now and again. And it's always some over-the-top epic like um, thing that just adds to it. And it's a lot of it's bravado. That's the other thing that came out about him, you know, um, over time is just how much um, how much swagger he had and, and how much of a shit talker he was and, and how cocky and confident he was in his game. And um, he has all those things. You know, he has that. He got that blue collar thing going. He got the clutch moments. Um, he was, uh, you know, there for a while. He was a one one team guy. I mean, he was uh, on a period that everybody, every Boston fan would look back at as fondly in the '80s. I mean, they just they were in that. They were in the game every uh, every single year, year in and year out. So he he kind of hit on all three sectors to to really be beloved and. You know, that's how he endeared himself. You know, you have guys that um, play there and they never really, um, you know, you're talking about Frank Thomas before. Besides p- putting performance aside, there's there's ways certain athletes can endear themselves to a city um, that, that people remember and will really take with them. And those human elements, like I said, him cutting the grass, um, you know, or he's got a story about... Um, one of the ones I really liked that came out last year about Bird was him running a mar- um not a full-on marathon, but it was like a 5K on a... Um, so he had this 60-point uh, game. And there's this great retelling of it. I, I forget the article uh, who wrote it, but it's a really fun, told from this, you know, tall tale type perspective. It's, it's just, this is a... Uh, um, it, it's told in such a way that... He's in a legendary fashion, and, and so they retell this story about the 24 hours leading up to this 60-point game, and you know the context was that was a different era, of course, but he runs a, he runs like a 5K on a whim, um, and uh, they they gets the okay from the trainers, and um, he's in he he goes and runs this for I forget which teammate it was it was like Bill Wegman or somebody or I don't know some kind of guy, but he asks him to run it with him I forget why. And then people recognize him while he's doing it, and people start wanting to beat him to um, tell their friends they beat Larry Bird in a race. So then Bird gets competitive about it because that's what the consistent thread in every great athlete yeah, is. Yeah, you can hyper, feel it. Hyper competitive. So he starts. They were going at a gingerly pace, and then by the end, he's like, "I'm not losing to these guys. They can't beat me. I'm going to outrun them." So he finished um, on a whim and doing this. I forget. He pulls in like a top time in the race and then goes out and he's he's sore as hell the next game because he didn't anticipate riding this thing. So when he goes in to, for this 60-point game, his hammies are shot and he's completely sore going in and doesn't and is not ready to play that day. So like they love those stories that make, yeah. him, make him seem larger than life. They love, they don't want to hear, um, you know, at this point his legend has grown so much that well, he endeared himself locally through those regular cut-in-the-grass stories. Now the legend has just grown year in and year out. That they people love to hear those legendary moments and stories that just add to that legend. They don't want to hear anything bad about him at this point. So as Rob ends with the Larry Bird conversation, uh, that concludes part one of my conversation with Rob Peel of Radiant Pig Brewery. Um, If you want to listen to part two, it is going to be located after this on SoundCloud. 
it'd be awesome to check that out. So, um, I don't know. Talk to you soon. <laughs>